RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. I've just watched a video from 2020, and it was of Melissa Darby, who is a senior lecturer at Takura Tangata School of Education, University of Waikato, and her speech to the Speak Up for Women event in Parliament back in 2020. Now, that wasn't the original venue. It was supposed to be Massey University, but it ended up at Parliament. And, um, you know, quite a few points were made by Melissa in that speech. That was three years ago, so a few years have elapsed. But we'll talk about that, but then move into uh, the more sort of current time period. Melissa Darby joins us at Reality Check Radio. Melissa, it's great to have you, and thank you for making some time for us. Thanks for having me, Paul. Okay, so when you think back to that speech, which has aged well, I have to say, <laughs> uh, not too long ago, the group were denied the venue at Massey University, a university, mm. and you had to shift to Parliament. Um, three years ago, you think back to that. What are your thoughts now? Oh, gosh. Really that some of the points that were made about free speech at the time, you know, that when we start censoring, it's a slippery slope that's absolutely come to pass. It was remarkable to me at the time that a group of women wanting to get together, and men to be fair, there were men who attended that conference as well, who wanted to get together to talk about some of the huge changes that, you know, we're facing in society at the moment were banned. You know, before some of us had even written down what we were going to say, we were told that it was hate speech, even though I hadn't written the speech. (laughs) Um, They couldn't read your mind, obviously. Yeah, apparently. Um, you know, it's just incredible that that was something that we, that was banned even at the time. But looking back now, it doesn't surprise me at all because I think that that trend has continued and really has gotten worse in a lot of areas. Yeah, I mentioned you know, university banned you, which is at odds for a lot of people. Um, they seem to have got away with that. Uh, that sort of disappeared off the radar. Not many people talk about that or remember it very closely anymore. And I think at the time they sort of came up with reasons uh, for that that didn't mention censorship, did they? It was more like health and safety sort of angle. Am that's I correct? right. Yes, that's right. It was um, ostensibly health and safety. Um, you know, but then, of course, that's sort of a broad area at the moment, you know, when things like hurt feelings are said to Um, infringe on somebody's health or safety, then we've got a problem. Um, Ironically, the conference was due to be held from memory during the exam break. So students weren't even going to be on campus. In addition to that, it was going to be held in the evening. So, you know, even fewer students would have been on campus. uh, And yet it was still going to apparently infringe on people's health and safety. I mean, the obvious thing to that, of course, is if you feel unsafe, you simply don't go. But that is too simple a um, solution for some people. Yes, it's all about safety and feelings, isn't it? Uh, That hasn't changed. In fact, it's become more intense, we might say. In that speech, you talked about the possible implications of identity politics and censorship three years ago. What do you think we've seen since then? More? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Now it's commonplace to see um, people say that if you're of a particular ethnicity, you simply can't comment on something. Um, If you don't belong to the group in question, the so-called oppressed group in question, then you have no right to have an opinion on a particular topic. Uh, We see that not only 
it's kind of on social media and things, so I guess in the sort of general public, but um, including in, you know, other areas, universities, for example, it's something that um, that you definitely see. You must have particular um, representation from various groups on projects in order to give that project validity. Um, you, you can't comment on things unless you have this arbitrary characteristic about your identity, um, you know, tick a box, really. Yeah, I think in that you, you mentioned Peter Thiel, um, Kanye West and Jermaine Greer, and that who they are had been conflated with, you know, the, the bigger picture of what's happening uh, to the point where the, their personal authenticity as the people that they are were called into question, like Kanye West isn't black if he likes Trump or wears a MAGA hat, when clearly he is. Yeah. Peter Thiel, um, you made some comments about uh, Peter Thiel not actually being gay, um, if he supported Trump, that was the uh, example. And and the huge one, which I find very difficult because I've always been a fan of Jermaine Greer, mm-hmm. the ultimate feminist. She put yeah. it on the map. I know. And now she's not like a woman. <laughs> you know? I know. Well, she's no longer a feminist. She was yeah. even denied an honorary doctorate from, uh, I can't remember the name of the university, a university she's had a lot to do with over time because of her views on you know, biological women versus identifying as a woman. So it's severe. She's she's been completely kind of, in some quarters, um, ostracised from, you know, and deemed to be no longer a feminist. But you're right, she absolutely put it on the map. So, I, I mean, I, identity and people's opinions, I guess, are very closely linked. And I experienced that myself as someone who has Māori heritage, for example. It's it's not a label that I like to, to use, really, because people then assume that I'll think a particular way on certain topics. Um, and that may sometimes be the case, but not always. So, you know, and I've certainly experienced um, banishment, I guess, from particular groups because my own views didn't align with the sort of approved orthodoxy. So this conflation of who you really are with identity politics and pushing you out of who you are if you don't sort of buy the entire package. That's dangerous, isn't it, in the end? That's actually dangerous? Of course it is because, you know, at the heart of um, sort of social identity and things is, is people want to belong. You know, people generally don't go walking around the place seeking to be um, ostracised or banned from groups or things, not generally, and so what happens is people who perhaps feel um, concerned about being about their identity being brought into question will start to conform more and more. And of course, then we just get um, you know anything but diversity. We just get um, a whole lot of mass-produced ideas that everybody has to toe the line on, and it's 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 really bad. I don't think people generally understand the severity or the, the possible impact of this on our democracy, on, you know, civic society, on, on engaging with different ideas, it's we, we simply have to be able to do that in order to for us to all get along, really. And people, they try and make, um, what, sort of rational arguments as to why this could be. I think, you, again, you mentioned in that speech, someone alluding to, in history, talking about Māori particularly here, that, you know, there was tolerance of fluid genders i don't know how you know this no one's written it down and first i've heard of it and that you know it's sort of like it it wasn't a problem mm. um which is i mean that there's no resolution of detail in that but that then connects it 
connects being Maori to the trans train, yes. if if you will. And then, of course, if you've got any issues with that, well, now you're rejecting your heritage. Yes. Exactly. That's exactly how it works. Um, you know, I think I mentioned in that speech as well from memory that, you know, I'd been told I had a colonised mind because I didn't believe that, you know, gender fluidity was this pre-colonial idea. I mean, there's no evidence for that. There simply isn't. Um, I am very suspicious of the, I guess, activist types who um, I think use Māori to advance their ident- their sort of cause because, of course, that adds another, um, I guess, piece of ammunition, if you like, for them to be able to say, if you don't agree with us, not only are you phobic or whatever, but you're also racist. Because hmm. racism is, no one likes to be called a racist. No. It's, it's, it's very bad. Yes. So people avoid that at all costs. So there's a lot of leverage um, in, in using that. Yeah. Okay, so um, let's pull forward now over three years, and we all know what happened at Albert Park. Mm. And it seems to me that um, women, well, they haven't really made any headway in, in, oh, no. in, 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 <laughs> in really driving home the point that, um, and, and very simple principles here, um, that you can't sort of monster over, over women. You can't take over the gender. It's really like a gender takeover, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Hostile and I find, takeover. Yes, yes, and it is. And I find that interesting, you know, that it, it's never, people aren't ever asked the question, what is a man? I, I, don't, I don't know why. <laughs> um, there are, I guess, some schools of thought that feel that misogyny is at the heart of, of some of this stuff. Um, I'm, I don't know about that, um, maybe for some people. But certainly, I mean, Albert Park, gosh, no matter what the rally was about, whether it was about climate change, whether it was about tax reform, we should all as a nation be extremely disturbed by what unfolded that day. Yeah, we at least we saw it in the open. It came out and it and it showed its face. Were you actually there? No, I wasn't. Um a friends of mine were there um and I was following uh closely I guess via social media and things what was unfolding and I was absolutely shocked it, it, you know I'm a pretty resilient person um I have to be <laughs> uh working in the area I am and, and holding some of the views I do I guess but um it, it really shook me for a good week or so um I, New Zealand suddenly became a place I felt like I didn't recognize anymore yeah I don't think you're alone in that mm-hmm. were you surprised to see the ferocity if you were watching the live feeds like many of us were at the time, you could see it straight up, you know, and it was young men and women, both, that they were, it seemed like they were possessed with an idea. Is that a... Yeah, I I agree. Um, I was was surprised, I guess, to see it so sort of in your face, literally. Um, But then not surprised as well. I feel like, you know, when you kind of take a step back and look at things that have been unfolding, really, I mean, if we take since that 2020 conference you're mentioning um, and and look at how things have unfolded, certainly look at the role that um, certain media outlets played in the lead up to, um, you know, Posey Parker's visit. Look, they just, in my view, absolutely um, stirred that pot. (laughs) Like, Like an incitement of agro, basically. I think so. I mean, I know that incitement has sort of legal um, connotations as a term, but um, 
you know, when you have organisations interviewing just one side of the story and really being completely untruthful about some of Posey Parker's views, some of her associations and so on, um, well, look, look what happened. Yeah, well, it all results in division. Uh, any, anyone can see that. And it, it's on, you know, quite a few levels. We just talked about, you know, the conflation of racism with this. Um, mm. There's the um, disinformation project report that's come out, which uses the word genocide. I don't think they made that word up. I think they, they took it from someone else's report, but they put it in there. You have to have such a high bar to be using that word. And, and they used it. So you can feel that it's starting to, do you think it's starting to approach like a fever pitch now? Yeah, I, I do. But I also, what's been interesting is, the, you know, in a way, the disinformation project did, you know, if I can use such a simple term, the other side, a huge favour because, I mean, I think most rational people know that there is no genocide. And when anyone who has the slightest knowledge of 20th century history alone knows what real genocide looks like. And to me, using that term in the way that they did makes a complete mockery of people, groups around the world who have experienced genocide in its true form. Um, so perhaps they've crossed a line, perhaps their, uh, you know, hyperbolic language and, you know, claims that they're making people now see through them. I think more people are seeing through them, whether that is simply, um, you know, wishful thinking on my part in terms of any real change resulting from that remains to be seen, but fingers crossed. You are an academic, so you're in a brilliant position to judge the the rigour of that work. I don't know how much <laughs> you've done a deep dive into it. I've read some of it, um, probably about half of it. And we've had people on this radio station who've gone through the whole thing, very smart people, and kind of uh, analysed it. Mm. And and i, I got to say, the, the, the feedback has been as shonky. It's totally shonky. In fact, it's an embarrassment Yes. in, in that context. Absolutely. I mean, it's completely, I mean, it's to call it research is a stretch. You know, what it is is a group of people who have a narrative, who have an agenda, who are trawling the internet to find um, cherry-picking comments to suit their agenda and suit their narrative. And anyone who knows anything about research knows that that is not the way that you approach it. Yeah, the um, use of, uh, uh, or describing just simple emojis as yeah. <laughs> hateful. You know. I know. I mean, for goodness sake. Well, what do you say? <laughs> it's, yeah, the use of the, the angry face emoji from memory. I mean, I didn't um, do a deep dive into it because, um, gosh, you lose the will to live reading some of the nonsense that's in it. Um, but it was a bit of a, a laugh, i got to say, as an entertainment item. It was almost like a Monty Python script, actually, yes. what it reminded me of. Yes. It was, it was it so out there. <laughs> it was, and I think that that has backfired. Um, the extent to which it's backfired, I don't know, but certainly um, I know that it's woken people up and it's got people's attention and not necessarily in the way that they wanted. Okay, the reason I brought that up is because there seem to be some moving parts to all of this. You've got the uh, the trans lobby um, and you've got the, um, you know, the, the rainbow movement. And it seems uh, I've spoken to quite a few gay men and lesbians who want a divorce from that. They're not comfortable mm. with that. They want to get away from that. So that's sort of been, um, you know, absorbed as well into this. 
like women are being, you know, to <laughs> eventually disappear uh, yes. in one blob. I don't know. But there's a lot. It seems to be quite a bit of power behind this. <clears throat> Resources of the media. It seems to be money flowing to these people. They get a lot of airtime. Um, Kiwi Bank sponsor <laughs> events where, you know, controversial people win awards when there are probably people doing real work out there in communities who deserve to really be recognized. A lot of this doesn't make sense. A lot of moving parts. Any thoughts on, on where the power behind this is coming from? Because there does seem to be some force involved here. Yeah, that's a good question. And ironically, it's something I spent a bit of time thinking about, you know, how have we got to this point? And one of the things that shook me and, and, and others certainly that I've spoken with about the events in at Albert Park was the complicity across to the media, uh, police, um, government officials, um, MPs and so on. It was really interesting. They're all very much singing from the same, um, you know, song sheet and which isn't reflective of the public. You know, there's certainly some people who would agree with them, but but not all. Um, where it's coming from, I think that there's a few different strands that all play a part. You know, there's a, a lot of different uh, aspects that have all combined really to create this perfect storm. And people don't believe, I think, what's really happening. Um, if you're not sort of following certain groups or if you're only reading um, certain news outlets or, or listening, watching certain news sites, then, you know, you're going to get a very different picture. So so there's that, I think, that plays a part. The degree to which the public is informed plays a you know, really crucial role. Um, research, you know, if research can't be contested and properly go through proper checks and balances, then, then that plays a part. Uh, if people of particular political persuasions gravitate towards certain uh, jobs, then those agencies become stacked with people who all agree with one another. And there's, we're sort of increasing, living increasingly in, you know, um, echo chambers, and that doesn't help. And, of course, social media plays a huge part in all of this as well. In your experience, then, when I turn to the education sort of um, space, um, and we've heard from... Um, professors and and university people or ex-university people who have been on our radio station that, you know, the going has got more and more difficult as they've gone along and many have just said, hands up, I'm out of here. And uh, it, it has the potential to distort and warp, you know, research. What's your experience of that been? It does. Um, you know, we need to be able to question things. And I think the universities have a very particular and very uh, special role in in that, in making sure that we are, um, as, as the saying goes, the critics and conscience of society. And I think that that's under threat at the moment. You know, people, are, like you said, don't want to be accused of racism. But what constitutes racism nowadays is simply asking a question about the Treaty of Waitangi or questioning um I don't know, something, big changes around co-governance or something. And that, that isn't fair. Um, people need to be able to ask questions and research needs to be properly set up so that, um, you know, the outcomes that emerge from it actually reflect the reality of the participants involved. But when you have, uh, you know, people unable to ask questions or feel they're unable to ask questions, they self-censor. So these things go through without... Um, without the proper sort of checks and balances on them. And then, then of course, they make their way into policy, into, um, you know, different 
strategies or programs in schools and health and, and justice, whatever it may be. So I think people tend to dismiss universities as, you know, ah, oh, the ivory towers and the academics can, you know, pontificate amongst themselves. But these things have real, real life consequences across society. One thing that was noticeable during COVID with all the experts talking, many of them from universities, is that uh, I noticed a lot of people I know uh, had huge faith in them. They, they, their credibility was huge. They, they were trusted without question. And if anyone had anything against to say, it would be immediately uh, they'll throw them back at you. Well, you, you, you're not an expert. You, next time you're an epidemiologist, then maybe you can say something. Uh, this, there seems to be a bit of a magic spell um, on people and the credibility um, that is assigned to that, which is a kind of shuts down questioning as well. Yes, you're right. And that's, that's where the danger comes in. Look, and, you know, if after the questioning occurs, uh, what the person said initially or what the research, um, you know, was going to show still emerges, then that, that's great. We know, though, that it's it's been through some sort of, um, I guess, testing phase. But at the moment, I think that's happening. Well, certainly less and less, not as much as it needs to. And the idea that people can't ask questions about something or can't have a view on something without a, a, a PhD in a particular topic, I think, is, is well, not only arrogant, of course, but really unhelpful for, you know, public debate and, and discourse. You know, that, that's really under threat at the moment, and we're seeing some of the impacts of that now. And as you say, that work finds its way into policies, right? Yes. And, and, and big money is involved, taxes are involved, people's lives are involved. If it's not rigorous, then it could be a disaster. Yes, exactly. And when you look at areas like, you know, the hard sciences, where it's even impacting in those sorts of areas, you know, it isn't the job of a scientist to be... Uh, worried about the diversity ratio of their, of their research team or something. The job of scientists is to, you know, um, I guess, keep the, the dark ages at bay and, and keep, you know, society to, to find truth, if you like, and to find solutions to some of the big problems that, that face us, whether they're researching in medical areas or, or wherever. Um, but instead, their attention is being diverted or, or their funding, at least, is compromised if they don't meet other, uh, you know, could I say social justice type aspects of research. But but scientists, for example, need not be concerned with that. That isn't their job. And we're going to obviously, that's going to have a knock-on effect in terms of our progress in society. So it's all about preserving jobs and income and paying mortgages. It's kind of in the big picture, again, follow follow the money. Yeah, and I think that's um, a real concern for people, you know, when uh, expressing particular views can place your job under threat and when you're really at the whim of, the, you know, your manager or something as to whether he or she agrees with you or, or the other side, then, you know, they're real concerns for people. Yeah, and also one thing we've learned in the last three years, I'm not going to bang on about that, don't worry, but people can be thrown under the bus just like that now. It's heartless, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. They don't care. They can. they can be. They really can be. And as an example, you know, with that uh, speech you mentioned uh, three years ago, 
you know, I had people calling my employer before I'd even said a word um, saying that I was, you know, hateful, that I was a danger to society, that I needed to lose my job because of that, you know, really putting significant pressure on um, my employer at the time to to get rid of me for for saying things. I mean, gosh, the speeches on YouTube, people are free to watch it. For saying nothing that controversial to me, so, I, I stand by what I said. It, you know, it's pretty reasonable stuff. <laughs> so your body of work was less worth less than a couple of sentences, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I still feel like I sort of kept my job, if you like, because thankfully my employer at the time said, if, you know, she's free to say what she wants to say and you're free to offer a counter argument. Um, but whether that happens for everybody, well, we know it doesn't. And I certainly have paid the price in other ways. I bet. Um, your wheelhouse is teacher training. Uh, am I correct? Yes, uh, my research is in um, early literacy development. Okay. So I want to ask you about the New Zealand curriculum. Again, we've had plenty of people on talking about that, on not on this program, but on other programs. And our audience is engaged in that and has a lot of opinions about it. Um, can you can you give us your thoughts on the New Zealand curriculum and then broadly more concerns about, for, for want of a better term, social engineering sort of, coming to the classroom like I could never remember it when I was there or my kids, which weren't that long ago, were there. seems to be a very recent development. I wonder how teachers feel about being at the centre of that and is this a patchy thing or a, a universal thing that's coming into our system? So if you could speak to those, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, with regard to the New Zealand curriculum, there's obviously a lot of changes um, to all the different aspects of it. Um, and I'm certainly not an expert on all of those. But one thing I will comment on, you know, I saw a statement recently that um, thought that the curriculum refresh would result in less disparity or a decrease in the sort of achievement gap between uh, certain ethnic groups and other ethnic groups. And that concerns me because... There are there's a um, there's disparity or a range of achievement within those groups as well. So not all groups achieve exactly the same as as one another. Um, and really, in order to lower uh, gaps between achievement or alternate outcomes, the easiest thing to do, of course, is you know it's really to fail everybody. <laughs> it's much easier to um, pull down the people at the top often than it is to to raise people up. Now, I'm all for children in this country getting the best education they can possibly get. But I'm concerned at the direction it's heading uh, when little attention is given to the other aspects that play a part in children's outcomes. So things like attitude to education in the home, um, whether a child even turns up to school, um, the child's uh, conscientiousness and willingness to listen in the classroom and so on. All of those things play a part. But what we're seeing is this almost silver bullet approach with the New Zealand curriculum, just, you know, at least in this regard, that the changes are going to suddenly, you know, improve in particular Māori educational outcomes, Pacifica educational outcomes as well to some extent. Um, I think that that's wrong, um, or at least it's not the only thing that, need, that needs attention or where attention needs to be given. Um, as far as the social engineering stuff is concerned, I mean, I really agree with you. I think that schools... Um, 
or the government at least, through schools, are stepping into areas that are the domain of parents or families and should remain the domain of parents and families. What families teach their children in the privacy of their own home about the big social issues at the moment is entirely up to them. You know, I'm a um, free speech, true diversity advocate. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure that the direction um, that we're heading in at the moment with schools and some of that stuff is, it's really indoctrination in many in many cases. You know, children are given opinions on things like climate change that the world's top scientists are still grappling with. You know, you, your seven-year-old can come home with a view on it. I'm all for children obviously engaging in, in current affairs and things. I think that's important, very important. Um, but well, I, I used to have to do news as a kid sitting on the map. We had to get up and yeah. do news. Yes. <laughs> yes that was four, over 40 years ago. Me too, but look, Nearly 50 we, all, years ago. <laughs> we all know that uh, the reaction if, you know, a child had reported on the other side of the Posey Parker events, you know, at show and tell or whatever, and the reactions from some teachers or, or the, at least the approved party line in school. So there we approved news and then perhaps not so welcome news, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, um, but, um, you know, there are groups coming into schools and parents aren't aware of them being there, as it turns right. out. And and they're putting, you know, life concepts at seven, eight-year-olds. That's right. And I think it's really important um, that parents, uh, for those who are concerned about this or at least want to know more, get in touch with their school principal, get in touch with their children's teachers to find out exactly what's being taught around some of this stuff because um, there's a there's variation. Uh, it's often dependent on school leadership, uh, the teacher in question. But if um, you know you'll find yourself in a school that is uh, all for some of these changes and all for um, telling children about gender ideology or whatever, then that that is entirely possible now. So that would be my advice to parents. I certainly do it um, because it's something that I think is, is, you know, up to me as a parent, not up to the school. Okay, so to wrap up, um, given everything we've talked about and what happened at Albert Park, et cetera, do you think we're at peak crazy or has it got more? Is there oh more gosh. to run? I know it's hard to crystal ball, <laughs> but, you know, back in 2020 um, when, and I was in news broadcasting that news about the, what happened to you guys, mm-hmm. and I thought that, People are going to flip out when they hear this. This will be over in no time. Massey will cave. Boom, 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 boom. None of that happened. No, no, it didn't. And um, look, are we at peak crazy? I thought we were at peak crazy probably then as well, just like you. And we've seen, unfortunately, that we're not. Um, I, you know, the pendulum hopefully will swing back a little in the opposite, in the other direction. But certainly, some changes that we've seen, I don't think will be reversed by you know, sort of no matter who's in power. Um. I do think that the silent majority needs to speak up. What I've seen um, lately is if one, just one person, um, sometimes me, sometimes other people, ask but one question suddenly and, and, you know, says, hey, actually, isn't that emperor naked? Everybody else goes, oh, thank goodness. Yes, he is. And now I can finally say it. So I think that's that's something we all need to think about. Well, it's been great chatting with you. Thanks for coming on our program. And uh, maybe we'll talk again. Uh, it was uh, really uh, entertaining, actually, to see your speech <laughs> after three years and sort of measure it off with where we are now. And, uh, again, thank you for coming on the program. All the best. Thanks for having me. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.